Obviously, when you get diagnosed with cancer, it shakes your world because, you know, it's a scary term. We still talk about it in couch euphemisms. Uh, we might know logically that survival has never been better, that treatments have never been better. But that's not what you think about because we're humans first and we emote first and we rationalize afterwards. You're listening to the Patient Voice in Cancer Research Fireside Chat podcast. The Patient Voice in Cancer Research is an initiative of UCD Conway Institute, a research institute based in University College Dublin. My name is Elaine Quinn. This podcast series deals with the topics that matter most to people on their cancer journey. What does the research tell us? We bring together patients and researchers to answer the tough questions. In episode seven, we look at misinformation and disinformation in the media and what patients need to look out for to help separate cancer facts from fiction. Patient advocate Kay McKeown chats with Dr. Amanda Drury, a researcher from UCD School of Nursing, Midwifery and Health Systems in University College Dublin. Also joining the conversation today is researcher, broadcaster and author, Dr. David Grimes from Dublin City University. This episode is introduced by Amanda McCann, Professor and Senior Conway Fellow in UCD, who leads the Patient Voice and Cancer Research Initiative. It's lovely to see so many of you uh, joining us again. Uh, we've had a, a consistent attendance now in, in these fireside chats. We'll be taking a, a break in August, but we'll be back again in September. But this evening, we're going to be talking about separating cancer facts from fiction what patients should look out for. So we're going to be exploring, you know, this definition of misinformation, disinformation. Um, we know from all of the conversations we've had uh, within Patient Voice and at our workshops about the timing of, of information, you know, when that information is given, it, it really has to be timed, you know, properly. But when it's given to certain patients, that may be different for others. So, so it's when it's when we actually make that information available. And of course, it's the reputability of that information. You know, what, what's what's good information out there? Uh, what can patients be secure about when they're, they're looking for vital information at a time that, that suits them? So we're going to be exploring that uh, in the next 45 minutes. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce a wonderful friend and colleague, uh, Kay McKeown, she's going to be uh, emceeing and introducing our contributors. Kay is a, a visual communications and user experience designer, a cancer patient advocate, and she is currently enrolled on the uh, Masters uh, in Design for Change programme at the Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Dunleary in Dublin. Mm -hmm. Kay has over 16 years experience working in design practices while also completing freelance work um, she has worked for a diverse range of clients in Ireland and internationally, including global high-end corporate and luxury brands, wellness companies, sports sector and small local emerging businesses. Kay was diagnosed uh, with breast cancer in 2017. It understandably changed her life, but she has always believed in using creativity, work experience and life skills to enhance her life and the lives of others. Kay is passionate about patient advocacy and is a PPI representative for Breakthrough Cancer Research, the Irish Cancer Society, and she is a council member of the Irish Association for Cancer Research. So we were we are in exceptionally capable hands. So it gives me great pleasure 
uh, to pass over to Kate, who will introduce our speakers and then facilitate the, the Q&A. So, Kate, thank you very much. No problem. And thank you for the introduction, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we've got two um, great guests with us here today. Um, we have Dr. Amanda Jury and uh, Dr. David Robert Grimes. So I'll just give a brief intro into both of them and then they shall um, have a wee chat for a couple of minutes about themselves as well. So Amanda is an assistant professor um, of nursing at UCD School of Nursing midwifery and health systems. Um, her research interests span the areas of supportive and palliative care in cancer and chronic illness. Her research aims to enhance the understanding of health and well-being for people affected by cancer, including the personal, social and healthcare factors which influence these outcomes. Dr. David Robert Grimes is um, at DCU. And he's a physicist, cancer researcher, broadcaster, consultant, and author. His academic work encompasses everything from how oxygen affects tumor dynamics to impact to the impact of disinformation and conspiracy theory on public understanding. He has a strong focus on public understanding of science and medicine, and has contributed to BBC, RTE, The New York Times, The Guardian, Scientific America, The Irish Times, and PBS. So, yeah, pretty esteemed company. <laughs> so I'll hand you over to Amanda, and then David can take over after that. Thanks, Kay, and Amanda and Sheila for the invite to join you this evening. Um, so I suppose we're starting with our pitch on cancer how fact from fiction so I suppose I speak about this very much from my background in nursing and my research around health and well-being of people who are living with and after cancer and what we know is that people who are living with and after cancer live with many unmet information needs and these are the needs that motivate people to seek information so from any source it can be online it's from peers it's from family members people in the community having an understanding information is really important for people to help inform how they make decisions about their treatments about their care but the difficulty is how do we access how do we know the information we're accessing is reliable it's credible it's never been easier to get information today, but it's never been more difficult to determine how accurate that information is and how reliable it is. It's very easy for someone to self-publish, promote and advertise information online and on social media. But for someone who's not quite so savvy with the internet, it's how do you know who this person is that's sharing this information and determine are they a reliable source of information? Is this their experience and just their experience or is this based on well-conducted research and reliable information. What we've seen in studies in recent years is that up to 80% of social media posts contain misinformation about cancer treatment. So this was a study conducted in China. They looked at posts on their Chinese social media that examined, that spoke about information related to cancer treatments. And they found that four out of five of those posts were reporting misinformation around cancer surgery, radiotherapy and drug therapy. I suppose I've been very fortunate to have worked in hospitals and healthcare systems where we've had complementary therapy as part of our services, nurse-led complementary therapy. 
And I think these are services that are really important to support people in coping with a diagnosis of cancer and with the effects of cancer. But they're not available in every system. And I suppose one of the challenges that we come across is that people who can't access these services either through their hospital or through uh, their cancer support services will turn to the internet to look for sources of support like this. And the danger is that when you go to these sources of support, you can't always be certain who it is that you're getting this from. What's their expertise? What's their knowledge? What's their background? And I think most critically, are you paying them? Because it's very different to seek oral therapies from someone who you're paying compared to someone who's working in the health system and it's offered as part of your treatment. So I suppose these are all things that need to be taken into consideration when you're looking for information online, what sort of information, what sort of support you're looking for. And I suppose it's really important. My take home message is opening the conversation with healthcare professionals that are looking after you, talking about the sorts of therapies that you might be looking at outside of your treatment and how you can ensure that you're most effectively looking after your cancer. Because the danger is that some of these therapies can interact with cancer and we don't know unless we talk about it. And I think it's making sure that either if your healthcare professional isn't opening the conversation, that you take that responsibility and open the conversation. And I'll pass it over to David. Thanks, Amanda. That was great. Thank you very much. And thank you for the, the, the overly kind introduction. I am intent on underwhelming you all this evening now that the bar has been set so high. I would echo a lot of uh, Amanda's sentiments and I, I don't want to repeat too much because uh, I'm getting to the age where I repeat things an awful lot anyway. But I think uh, my background is I, I'm, I'm initially a cancer researcher and I've been involved in patient outreach for about 10 years now. And one of the things that we tend to as humans is we don't like thinking about things that challenge our mortality, things that make us uh, worry about death or, or things like that, which is quite understandable because we don't really function that way normally. So oftentimes the first time we really think about cancer is when we've been diagnosed with it or someone we love has been diagnosed. And that's where we go scrambling for information. And it's at that juncture, that window, where a mixture, a symphony of charlatans in some cases, and, and just well-meaning but misguided people in other circumstances can inadvertently steer us down some very, very dangerous courses. Um, one of my friends is a guy over in Yale called Skylar Johnson, and, and the work that he's done has shown that patients that get sucked in by disinformation tend to fare a lot, um, a, a lot more negatively. For example, they tend to delay conventional treatment or they tend to sometimes reject it often until that their, their, their situation has deteriorated to the extent where it, it is difficult to, to come back from that. And that unfortunately has a negative prognosis on where they, where they go. My other area of research is, is disinformation. And they, we'll talk a bit about this in the chat, I think, but there's, there's a distinction to be between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is inadvertent uh, falsehoods being spread like say a, a misconception that gets spread around. And that happens all the time innocently. Disinformation is the more um, sinister cousin of that, where people deliberately propagate a falsehood in order to put forward an impression. And in cancer, we see both. We see people that, that share things, um, well-meaning bits of advice, particularly to patients. And I'm sure everyone here who's who's been diagnosed or has had someone they love being diagnosed will find people will offer you advice, often unsolicited, often not useful, uh, often scary, and, and they mean well, but they don't. And that's usually misinformation. 
At the other end of the spectrum, you have people that have either ideological or financial interest in spreading a, an alternative version of reality. Uh, some of you might have read the New York Times this week, did a profile of Joseph Mercola, who has uh, been fingered as spreading an awful lot of anti-vaccine disinformation during the, the COVID thing and profiting quite handsomely from it. If you look at his background, he's been doing this about cancer for about, I'd say, since at least 2007. I, I've been writing about him for 10 years. And, and there's an awful lot of overlap in the people that spread, we say, COVID disinformation and the people that spread anti-vaccine disinformation. And often because the ideological precepts behind them, that you can't trust modern medicine, that there are better secret alternatives being kept from you, they're very appealing narratives that the same people will latch onto. And I think that maybe today we'll discuss some of them and discuss ways of maybe uh, catching them out so you're not affected by them. Because there is good information, there is good data now that we can immunize ourselves against falsehood in, in a way analogous to vaccination, which I do a lot of work on as well. Um, if you know what to look out for, you can kind of become immune to it before you get affected by it. If you are affected by it, it's a lot harder to reverse that course. So definitely prevention is better than cure. And I'll stop babbling there and uh, let people take over who know more than me. Thank you, David. Um, you sort of answered the first question, and um, which is, uh, what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? And can you give us some examples? And where does it come from? So, like, fr from my point of view, like, I looked it up again, the definitions, because they're so similar. And uh, the best one I came across is that misinformation, it comes from the idea of mistake. So it's mis information so it's not intentional and so it's, it's like say say you read an invite and you see that it says 8 p.m but for some reason you think it's 9 p.m and you tell your friend it's 9 p.m like you do, don't do that intentionally but then disinformation comes from disrespect and it disrespect or as in um it's a reversal of the word after it so it's disrespecting information so say somebody decided they didn't want they wanted to embarrass their friend. They tell them that it, to come to the um, party at nine o'clock as opposed to eight. Do you know? And I was like, that's a really good way of of understanding it in lay terms, because a lot of this, like the thing about being a cancer patient and trying to understand the information is. It's all science and it's really it's really easy to misinterpret jargon. So that was my best um analogy that I came across. I don't know what do you think Amanda? What did you come across? Because it's always thinking about um how innocently people can reshare information. And I suppose one of the things you're on social media, you see a friend share a post and you trust that person, you know them well mm -hmm. and but not necessarily you may not know enough about the subject. And I suppose this is one of the big things we've seen during COVID is that you know people are sharing their take on issues around vaccines and issues around how COVID is spread, masks, and people are sharing this information. And sometimes innocently, sometimes viciously, and that's more along the disinformation end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But this is how it happens. It's, you know, it starts with one person some, putting something up that they've either misunderstood, and that's the genuine take on misinformation, or they've genuinely misrepresented something. And suddenly it gains traction and it starts to get retweeted or reshared and suddenly yeah. it's out there in the world and people are taking this as fact. 
and this is always the danger with social media. I think I, I think I'd echo that, and I think yeah. um, I love your analogy. By the way, I think it's a really good way to, to keep it in mind. Just to give you an idea, you're absolutely right that it's so complicated because uh, the the word dis- disinformation comes from a Russian term, desinformatia, which the Russians made up to try and sound French to throw the <laughs> Allies off the scent in the night in the early night. So if you want to trace, you go down a rabbit hole of crazy. Yeah. I much prefer your analogy that misinformation is mistaken. It's it's something that you don't mean to share. And mm-hmm. I think with cancer in particular, um, mm-hmm. we, we all know that, Mr., you know, well-meaning people always tell you things and 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 un- unraveling what's useful from what's maybe not is very difficult to do. It's mm-hmm. harder to believe, particularly when people have been initially diagnosed, it is harder to believe that people would deliberately spread falsehoods about cancer yeah. and cancer treatment. Um, because I think most of us are not that cynical. Most of us are, are, are we don't, we're not, our brains don't operate that way. Um, um, but it is absolutely true and, and quite shocking that a lot of stuff that is 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 deliberately pitched, particularly at new patients, um, mm. is by people with ulterior motives who maybe mm. want you to buy something. And it's very and, and I totally understand because your your skepticism, your natural skepticism about things, is definitely reduced because who would lie about cancer or or cancer treatments? And it mm. turns out there's a massive massive market for people that do just that and that's frightening and very disconcerting too it's also frightening because the person is frightened so their ability to be have critical thinking and be really examining what they're reading or watching is is pushed aside because of the emotions of being scared and frightened and really wanting to to believe there is something there that can help them the next question we had was why do people get drawn in and potentially fall prey to those peddling misinformation and disinformation? I think you might have kind of answered some of that question in, in what you said there. Fear is a powerful motivator, yeah. but humans have a propensity to seek uh, what, what the academics call epistemic certainty. And in lay in lay terms, I guess the easiest definition is you're looking for something you can kind of cling on to that, that makes sense. You're looking for understanding. And obviously, when you get diagnosed with cancer, um, you know, it, it's, it, it shakes your world because, you know, it's a scary term. We still talk about it in couch euphemisms. Uh, we might know logically that survival has never been better, that treatments have never been better. But that's not what you think about because we're humans first and we emote first and we rationalize afterwards. So one of the things that, that, that happens is we're looking for... Um, you know, we're looking to make sense of it because, you know, it again, you're looking at something that's very stochastic, very random. Um, often people are diagnosed in the prime of their life. They're not expecting this. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to make sense of it. And one of the things that makes people very vulnerable is that the narratives, like if you ask your doctor, your oncologist, they'll be like, yeah, you got unlucky and, and whatever. And that's not very satisfying on an intellectual level. What you often get with cancer disinformation is someone who gives you a very obvious, easy, simple solution. Oh, you got the cancer cause of sugar or cause of 5G or whatever else. Yeah. And then they offer you a very simple, um, easy cure, but no pain, no get, no, and that's so appealing because it, it seems to be neat. Now it's totally illusory. It's, it's not true often, but it's much neater than the reality that your oncologist will shrug and go, well, you were unlucky. And the treatment for this is X, Y, and Z. And this percentage is going to maybe work. And maybe this percentage won't. And then we'll try this it's much easier to listen to someone who says, don't listen to that. I have a cure. This is all nonsense. 
and, and here you go. And I totally see people falling victim to it and understand why people do. I, and at least in, in my, Amanda might have a, a, a very a more nuanced take on that than me. Um, I suppose I can only echo what you've just said. And I, I think there's a really important idea around hope as well, because even if you're diagnosed with cancer and you have the best odds in the world, there's always that worry that you'll be the unlucky one. And fear is something that follows someone who's been diagnosed with cancer for the rest of their lives. It doesn't matter if you have come through your treatment and you're six months, five months or 10 years, there's always that worry that it might come back. So I suppose that can be a very powerful motivator for someone to take any information they can that gives them a positive, give them that hope. And I suppose we do see it a lot where people are diagnosed, they are taking the conventional treatments, but they're also looking at the alternative therapies or diets or whatever the latest craze on Instagram means that could protect you or increase your odds of survival. I suppose it's hope, it's fear, it's that emotion that you talked about, Kay, and these are all driving that thirst for information and the thirst for positive information that can give you that hope and reassurance that you're doing the best, everything you can for yourself. Well, it's funny because all of this stuff that you've mentioned, I've done, right? So like I had somebody uh, contact me and go, okay, so you need to take CBD oil. So I was like, okay, I'll take CBD oil. And like they sent it to me and I was putting drops on my tongue, you know, and then it was like, okay, you need to just eat a plant based diet. So I just did that for like six months. And then, you know, I went vegan, totally vegan for another six months. And I was like, but because I had to watch my diet so stringently, I was stressed out all the time. And like I go out with my family and they'd all be sitting there eating chips and burgers and I'd be going, oh, God, that's like killer food. I can't eat that, you know. And it got to a point where I was like, this is counterintuitive. It's making me more stressed. And we do know scientifically that stress is linked to cancer. So I was like, OK, so I'm going to dial it back a notch and actually start eating food again, like chocolate. Because <laughs> sugar gives me cancer, apparently. And then there was the pH thing as well. You know, like you need to drink bicarbonate of soda in water. And like, it's like all this stuff that happens in a Petri dish. It's a Petri dish. It's not human. You don't take in, like you have to take into account all the other factors that happen in the human body. And... I suppose when, like, because I'm four years out now, for me, it was, yes, fear. I was scared. I'm, but at the end of the day, it was more about, I want to take control of this situation and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And that's where it came from. So it's, but it's amazing the journey you go on. So I've been down many roads. But anyway, so we'll move on. So when I was diagnosed, right, um, I was actually living in New Zealand. So I have a completely different um, experience of the Irish health system. Um, I sort of fell through the cracks because I came back and I had had my surgery and everything. So um, when I was diagnosed, my surgeon gave me a couple of leaflets. And he explained everything. And I went home with this stuff. Now, I didn't look at it for a few days, but then I did. And it was really relevant to me. 
I also at another point met a breast care nurse and she gave me an information pack, which was all stuff from different charities and different organizations that dealt with breast cancer. And it was this like this thick. And I went home with it, but I had everything I needed. And all of the information was at hand and there were directions onto websites. And there's one website I went on that like filtered me through a process of what's your diagnosis? What's your age? Are you male or female? And um, this is all the information you need, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, this is amazing. So when I came back to Ireland, I expected the same treatment. And I was like, so where's this website? And where's all this information? Where's my info pack? And never got it. So I suppose the question is, is like from that perspective, like what sort of information should our medical professionals give patients and um, talk to us about um, to help us when we come across information online? Because so many patients search and unlike me, most patients don't get an info pack. So what what do you think should happen and when and where? The reality is, is that people will always go to Google. Yeah. And I think it's very naive for healthcare professionals to believe that patients won't just because we tell them don't go near Google. But <laughs> I think in the course of my, so kind of understanding patients' needs around information, yeah. and particularly around the time of diagnosis and through treatment, it is part of my research. And I suppose some of the really good exemplars that have come through that research are, you know, having time to sit down on the first appointment when yeah. you get off information nobody takes that information in you're still reeling from the diagnosis it's making sure you have someone who's with you who can some take some of the information in at least and I think COVID has really restricted people and our more recent research is really showing that when people with cancer and even after cancer are going to these appointments that they're not able to take all this information in themselves and for the first time they're going to these appointments by themselves so I think it's really important to give someone the opportunity if we're living in a remote consultation world or we're only allowing the person to come into clinic by themselves, that we are using technology. We're allowing people to dial into the consultation or remotely coming in virtually so that someone can listen in. And I think this is something from my own perspective with family members. It's really important because it's not just the person who's living with cancer who needs yeah. It's also the family member and family members carry an enormous burden mm. and they often feel that they're starved of information. Yeah. So finding creative ways to involve primary caregivers, spouses, children, family members, whoever it is in those consultations to help inform it. And the second thing is directing someone to a website. So that was the second thing that came through. Yeah. Really so someone told me their anecdote. It was... I went and I talked to the nurse and the nurse very openly said, I know you're going to Google. There's no point in me telling you not to Google. Here is a list of websites. And it was sort of Irish websites, UK websites that were local. They were culturally appropriate to them and had information that was relevant and related to the services that they'd be engaging with. So I suppose there are two ways yeah. how to help people navigate information. Mm. I it's the navigating the the information you get outside those websites is the other yeah. challenge. I think it's opening those yeah. conversations. That's the challenge, I think, from my clinical perspective and from my research. 
it, the challenge is actually opening conversations around where information is coming from and being able to have an honest conversation about that information. You're not, I think there's always a danger that healthcare professionals will get their back up around yeah. someone Google and coming in and saying, well, Dr. Google told me and, you know, Dr. Google knows better than you. You How you approach those conversations with patients is really important in how that relationship progresses because if you take a negative approach to it that, well, you shouldn't have done that, I told you not to do that, you're shutting it down and that patient will never speak to you again about their, the information that they're getting or where it's coming from. So you don't know what they're opening themselves up to. One of the things that is really important, and this is not just for cancer, this is for all, I would go all health, but also for everything in general. Um, we don't, as a society, practice information hygiene very, very well. We go on Google and we treat all information as pretty much equal opportunities, and that is not the case. The same way that we've spent the last you know, year and a bit socially distancing and, and keeping ourselves away, we should view information as pathogenic, as potentially infectious, and be very, very careful what we accept. Most of the studies we have show that we're not at all discerning. We might think we are, we're damn well not. And disinformation and misinformation is much better packaged usually than scientific information. Um, it's much more meme-worthy. It's much more shareable. It's much simpler, okay? It's also, frankly, bullshit, but there you go. <laughs> um, so one of the things, as, as Amanda's already mentioned, reputable websites, if healthcare... I, I, I'm, I'm reticent to tell healthcare providers what they should do. As an academic, I sit there and I'm, my oncology colleagues will strangle me to death if I try to tell them how to do their job anymore. But... Um, <laughs> But obviously, and has, has, has a nursing experience, and it is a case of knowing what your patients might do and giving them good resources. I think Cancer Research UK have absolutely brilliant resources. Now, I am biased. I was funded by them for several years, but their, their resources are top-notch. They're written from a patient perspective, and that's really important. The Irish Cancer Society have great links. Um, the National Cancer Institute in the US, yeah, these are absolutely brilliant go-to resources because uh, they deal with a lot of common patient questions too, that they might be embarrassed to maybe ask their, their oncology professional. They might think, and, and also patients should never feel embarrassed too, but I understand why people do. And the other thing as well, just to, is, is I think it'd be, it would be worthwhile for health professionals to be aware of the disinformation that their patients are going to be exposed to, to preempt it and to be able to say, not just, oh, I know you're going to Google it, but say, um, one of the things Kay mentioned there, I thought was really interesting, was the uh, the 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 dietary stuff, the the alkali and the CBD oil. Um, if you tell, I'm working with a bunch of uh, um, dietary dietary oncologists down in Cork at the moment on the information patients get, and one of the things that you generally don't want a cancer patient to do is go on a restrictive diet and. Uh, maybe lose weight, maybe put themselves in it. And, and yet that information is not often, often we don't get that information until um, a patient has already done it. So if you're aware of that before a patient might do that, you could say, look, you might read this. I would advise against it because X, Y, and Z. And also it's not really true for this reason. That's much more useful than when someone comes in to see you and maybe they've lost a lot of weight and you're like, what happened? And maybe like, okay, they went vegan or put themselves under a lot of stress. If, if healthcare professionals could be a little bit more aware of that, uh, which academics like me should help them be more aware of, uh, then maybe they could preempt that and make life a little bit easier for everyone. Mm. No, it's it's very true. I actually asked for a dietitian, my oncologist, and she was like, they're few and far between. Good luck in finding one. I was like, oh my God. 
<laughs> but like I went off and I, I found my information and went through my whole process. But I really like that info hygiene and being potentially infectious, which, um, you know, in terms of what should people look out for? Like, where would you signpost people to go for reliable information about treatment, side effects and alternative therapies? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I, I'm probably repeating myself a little bit, but I, I think that yeah. This is such a, a broad problem. It's it's not specific to cancer, but we're talking about that today. So we'll try to, to stick on that. I think learning um, or being guided towards identifying reputable versus non-reputable. And it's not a trivial problem. It's really, uh, I, and I, I, you can't just say patients should know it because they don't. It turns out they did a study on Stanford students about five years ago, um, Stanford postgraduates who allegedly you think would be fairly good at discerning if they're not, they're terrible. We're all terrible. But one of the things, and I wouldn't say just trust authority, I understand that's that's a reductive argument. But I think if um, something that's shared by the Irish Cancer Society, it's probably going to be more reputable than something that's shared on your uncle's Facebook page. <laughs> uh, and I, I think, I know it sounds trivial, but we all, we, we afford it equal weight. I think we have to be aware that disinformation in particular is designed to either scare us or to appeal to us on a very emotive level. If something seems too good to be true, probably is. Uh, it's very hard, but it's, or if something's very reductive, um, it probably is reductive. And I, I think that these dialogues and conversations need, need to happen. Where, where we talk about side effects, I mean, we have to be realistic. The, that conversation should often happen with primary care physician and oncologist, uh, but it also has to be viewed in context. Side effects are often symptomatic of a, tre- of a treatment working, which, you know, I mean, I, they're not pleasant. No one wants to endure them. Um, but of course, and they exist and we can't deny they exist. Um, but you often see with like a lot of non-effective medicines, they will claim. And the magic thing is there's no side effects. This just works. And you need to ask, well, if there's no side effects and cancer cells are just my own cells acting very weird, which I'm trying to get rid of, maybe this therapy isn't that effective. I'd probably be a bit more hardline when it comes to alternative therapies. I am, I, I know a lot of people find comfort in them and I would never take that away from people. But I do think that the efficacy of a lot of them is limited. They can interact negatively with real therapies if they have any biological efficacy, like a lot of herbs can, for example, interfere with chemotherapy. So whatever you do, I would say talk to your oncologist as well if it's going to be complimentary. And I would say just be very careful of what people promise you on the alternative regime because Mm -hmm. we've done some undercover investigations and found people promising things which they simply cannot do. Mm -hmm. And we've seen patients get fooled into this sometimes to their their extreme cost and and that's that's just something i'd be very cautious of amanda probably has better information than me on this as well in a clinical context complementary therapies can be very beneficial for people dealing and coping with cancer but when you start to go outside the clinical setting you're entering a gray territory because you don't know who you're dealing with you don't know what their experience with cancer is or what their knowledge of cancer treatments are and I suppose my experience is very different to someone who has worked in a hospital where we don't have access to complementary and alternative therapies we had two nurses who were fabulous working full-time we could refer our patients to them and it was very clear to patients that you know this is a psychological benefit it will support coping it's not going to change the outcome of your treatment but it may help you to deal with some of the issues that you're experiencing 
I suppose if I were going back to Kay's original question around directing people to sources of information, I suppose David's already mentioned the Irish Cancer Society. I think Macmillan UK would be a very good one. One of the big barriers, I think, is that for people with cancer, the accessibility of information that and reliable information, so scientific papers, is very challenging. If you if you don't have access to a library where you can access these papers, if you don't have the literacy to interpret what these papers are saying. So I think one of the things that I would be very strongly encouraging it when researchers are publishing their research, they should be doing complimentary blogs about their papers where they're explaining the outcomes of those papers at a level that people can understand. I think going back to the Google searching, there are tools out there that can help people to interpret the quality of the websites that they're looking at. And I'm going to just drop them into the chat in case anyone is interested in them. So one of them is the discern instrument, which was developed by UK researchers. And the second one comes from the National Institute of Health. And it just gives some pointers on the kinds of things you're looking at on websites to tell, are these reliable or are they snake oil? Yeah. For want of a better word. Um, so in case they might be helpful, I've just posted them there. But I, I would, what some of our projects that we're working on is to try and look at how we can integrate these into information packs for patients, recognising that people will Google and that we can't stop them. That's what the internet is there. It's open to all, but it's to try and give them some resources to better utilise the information that they're accessing. What you've just sent through there, Amanda, is 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 great. Um I actually had, like as part of my master's, we did a whole module on, you know, critical thinking and spotting fallacies. And um, I have some notes that I've sent the link to Sheila. And it's it's just, you know, at the end of the day as well, like you can't be spoon fed or handheld the whole way. Like you, you have to take responsibility as well for yourself and what the information is and using your brain to go, well, this is a load of BS and this isn't. You know, and and there's questions that you can ask yourself while you're looking at information to see whether is this really what it's saying it is or is am I being led down a path where somebody's trying to make some money off me? Um, one of the um, comments coming through here, actually, there's somebody has asked a question are there particular areas of cancer that seem to attract more misinformation and disinformation or maybe stages in the cancer journey that seem to attract more misinformation? I would probably say definitely around treatment. And that's just the natural, that's the point where people see that they can yeah. maliciously, malicious people see that as an opportunity to make money. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that entirely. And uh, the, the only other time, only thing that even comes close to it is when people talk about causative factors. Now, mm -hmm. you mentioned, Kay, or I thought it was really interesting in your journey because I've, I've heard it quite a bit from people. There's sometimes a bit of a blame narrative about cancer causes. Uh, oh, well, you know, oh, yeah. you, you should have gone the alkaline diet or you shouldn't have eaten sugar. And, and, and they're nonsensical, but they actually don't help patients at all because A, they're, they're wrong, which That's is bad enough. But when you're stressed about all this stuff, the last thing you need is an unnecessary guilt placed on your soldiers for something. But I would agree with Amanda, treatment is where it's at because that's where charlatans will make mm. their money from. 
And yeah. that's also where, you know, I would, I would argue charlatans are a small fraction of the people that offer services. I genuinely believe having dealt with people that, uh, that sell miracle cures and people that, that, that have all sorts of strange beliefs about magical treatments that they, they might offer you or take a, a fee for. I genuinely believe having talked to a lot of them that they absolutely believe what they're saying. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mean it's not going to kill a patient. They can believe it all they want. It's still, it's still damaging. So it, it's, it's, yeah, I'd say with a, it's treatment, absolutely treatment. Yeah. And it comes back to that whole idea of fallacies and, you know, dealing with the information and asking yourself, you know, like there's four questions. Is it true if I believe it? Is it's true if we believe it? Um, it's true if I want to believe it. So that's coming to the emotive section. And then it, it's true if it serves my best interest to believe it. So those last two really tie into that going back to the fear and the emotions and just wanting to be able to control the situation. I'm obviously a bit biased on this because I've, I've written a book on critical thinking. So everything you're saying to me is is, is absolutely chiming with me. But what I, what I would say as well is um, the thing I always, when people ask, how do you, if something really appeals to you, if something mm. is really, really, this is a weird thing to do because we're not programmed to do this, so to speak, but we should question information that appeals to us or seems to chime with our preconceived notions yeah. twice as hard as we would question someone who gave us news we didn't like or information we didn't <laughs> like, because yeah. that's when we are more susceptible to maybe, uh, and I think patients are often really susceptible. If someone tells you, mm. you don't need your chemo, I've got a mat, I've got apricot seeds and they're going to cure you. That's a hundred percent more appealing than you might have to go through a few rounds of chemo and it's going to have some unpleasant effects on you. Um, yeah. But again, that's when you, your, your skepticism, your critical thinking has to be even, and it's a very big ask. It's incredibly unfair to ask patients to have to do that. But unfortunately, because there are people that will try to sell snake oil, whether they mean to or not, it's just something that at the moment, I don't see any other way around. Yeah, I suppose it's it's more about knowing what the, the charlatans or the snake oil people get up to and how they try and and fool you, you know. And um, one of the things that shocked me was about YouTube and the clickbait. And like, obviously, like my background in marketing and everything and design, I know like about Facebook ads and AdWords and how everything is targeted at people. So if you're searching for something, those Facebook ads are going to come up and the Google AdWords are going to come up. Um, but the thing is that if you click on the link, the person gets paid. And then if there's a video, there's always an ad before the video. So they get paid for that too. So it's just knowing that before you actually watch the video, oh, this person's getting paid because I've clicked on the link and I've watched this ad. So, and that, that brings a, a more of a, a sinister part to it, knowing that alone. You go, oh, so that's my little, <laughs> little rant. I don't know if David and um, Amanda want to finish up or say anything. I'm just going to say thank you very much, David and Kay and Kay for your fantastic facilitation. It's been oh amazing. no problem. It's been really <laughs> enjoyable. It's lovely to chat with you both. Um, I, I'll echo that. Thank you all so much. I've, I've learned a lot listening to everyone else, so I really appreciate you facilitating as well. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Patient Voice and Cancer Research Fireside Chat podcast. A big thank you to our speakers and patient participants today. Subscribe and follow the Patient Voice and Cancer Research wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.